We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and I personally am really excited about it. Uh, it's been probably too long since we've just sat. If you, if you need a Bible, thanks. Raise your hand. It's been too long, maybe since we've sat under the teaching of God's Word. And what I love about it is, is like, I could totally just blow it, right? You guys are, we'll be used to it maybe, but we'll totally blow it. But here's the beauty is we've still gone through God's word and we've still been able to meditate on it and it's, it's coming unwashing over you. And so as we teach through it, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and he will lead you and he'll guide you in truth as we go through this. So you'll read this and there might be some particular things that I felt like God had put on my heart to share with you guys, some application and points to be made. But as you're reading through this, God will speak to you individually. He's also gonna speak to us corporately as a church and he's gonna move us together in a direction, which I think is pretty cool. And so God's word's gonna be taught. But I wanted to recap quickly to catch us up to speed as far as where we were. It's been a month or so since we've actually been in it. And so from Acts chapter one, all the way to Acts chapter seven, a very quick recap. I'll just be reading some things to you. You'll probably remember, I hope you remember, um, the book of Acts is the move of God's spirit through the church, reaching the lost world. And we'll, we'll break that down in a moment. In chapter one, Jesus promised the spirit. And we went through and kind of had a pattern of, of principles, you could say. Um, and the pattern was this, a move of God's spirit. And then you kind of fill in the blank based on what the chapter had. So a move of God's spirit here in chapter one is inevitable. Jesus said it was gonna happen. I'll pour my spirit out on you and you'll be my witnesses. We'll come in power. In Acts chapter two, it actually happens. It was the birth of the church where God breathed life into Adam when he was made. He became a life, uh, he became a, a life, a living being, sorry. God then breathed life into the church through his spirit. That was the rushing wind and God breathing into the church. The church now comes alive in a way that, was unusual and, and not seen before. It was prophesied though about, right, in Joel, he's gonna pour his spirit out on all flesh, so on, so on, so on. The birth of the church, but here it was a move of God's spirit will always produce the fruit of God's spirit. And it will draw you close to Jesus. So you can rest assured, we'll get, well, I'll, I'll wait. Okay, chapter three, a man gets healed and people get saved. So around 3,000, the chapter four tells us, Move of God's spirit will not leave me confused. It's an important thing to learn. It's not gonna leave you confused. You might wonder what's happening, but that's where explanation comes in. Well, this is what God prophesied. This is what God said. And this is how things are supposed to be done, decently and in order. So there might need some explanation, but God's a move of his spirit will not leave you confused. He will bring clarity and he'll bring power. In chapter four, the religious leaders take issue with Peter and, and, uh, and James and John, and they come after them because they're upset that Jesus' name was being preached. And they said, no longer can you preach in Jesus' name. The principle you could say of this was a move of God's spirit will always exalt Jesus Christ, always. But the world's gonna hate it. <laughs> and so it's like, are you ready for that, right? We wanna see Jesus exalted last week that he would be magnified, exalted, high and lifted up. That's Jesus, that's what we get to do, to know him and to make him known. A move of God's spirit will always exalt Jesus. And here's what's up. We're gonna get into later on here in the book of Acts. We won't do it today, but next week we might be able to get into it with Simon and the, the idea of spiritual warfare and that there is a different spirit. 
that there are, there's a demonic realm. We don't know a ton about it. And so we're not going to be doing conjecture. Like we, we're going to tell us, what does the word of God tell us? And that's kind of where we land, right? And I don't want to go too far beyond that because then it, gets, it can get weird. What does God's word say? That's what we're going to look into. The reality of the spiritual warfare that we find but there's a different spirit. And we're told, Scripture makes it clear, Thessalonians and various others, that the, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will come with lying signs and wonders. And you're going to have a, a world of people who will look on in awe at a move of a spirit that's not Jesus Christ, that's not the Holy Spirit, and they will be taken captive and they'll be deceived by it because they're not anchored into God's word. They're easily deceived. And so we want to combat that and so we recognize a move of God's spirit, be it genuine and real, will always exalt Jesus Christ. And the world's gonna hate it. If Jesus isn't being exalted and the world's cool with it, I would be very cautious of it. Because it's, it's probably not of the Holy Spirit. How do we discern that? We wanna learn how to discern so we're not deceived. Chapter five is when Ananias and Sapphira started uh, doing some funny business when lying about the money and so on. Sin is serious. A move of God's spirit can be hindered by sin in your own life, I think is how we made the little caveat in your own life. That if I want to be used by God, sin can hinder. I've seen that in my own life where I've had to deal with sin. And then when God deals with that, then it's like, okay, let's get moving again. So, but at, at large, man, this, the God, God still works. You cannot stop. God. One individual could never stop God. And so personally and individually, sin is serious. God calls us to live a holy life, set apart and sanctified, different than what the world looks like. Why? Because we're no longer of the world. We've been bought at a price. Remember last week? And so now I get to glorify God in my body, which is his anyway. A move of God's spirit can be hindered, but it will never be stopped. God's serious, man. And then we get chapter six, the seven deacons, a move of God's spirit will grow the church. That's exciting. And that will require more leaders. And so God stir up the people here in this body to, be, to raise up as leaders, young people. Are you ready to move into that? And older people, can we be discipling our younger people to be able to go and get after it for the Lord? We need that beauty in the body to be able to disciple one another. A move of God's spirit will grow the church. That's gonna require leaders. God, please do your thing. Um, a move of God's spirit is also practical, not just spiritual, meaning that there might be times where you need practically like, hey, uh, we need these six guys or seven guys to help with this. That's a practical way of meeting needs and the spirit can move like that. So things just to consider. Finally, chapter seven, Stephen addresses the council, the same council that killed Jesus that's been messing with Peter and James and John and the other apostles. A move of God's spirit will bring conviction. And oftentimes it will require a lot. What does that mean? Really quickly, if you remember Stephen speaking to them, talking about Jesus, and they were cut to the heart is how the language was. It's the exact same in Acts chapter three or four, where the people were cut to the heart. And what they say? They said, what, can, what must we do to be saved? So there's conviction. The Holy Spirit brought conviction and, and the, the, they came over here. What must I do to be saved? Over here, we see the, the religious leaders went over here and their hearts became hardened. It's, oh, I don't want that. I want to be soft towards the Lord. I want to be sensitive to his spirit and the move that God is doing. And so we don't want to see this take place, but a move of God's spirit will bring conviction. He'll cause us and bring us to a place of decision. What are you going to do? And what's God calling you to? And then at a place of decision, or like I could go right or I could go left. I can follow him or I can follow after the dictates of my own heart, which will always lead to disaster and devastation. 
And so he puts us in that place of decision. Oh man, that we would choose him, that we would yield to him, right? Lord, help us yield to you. That gets us to Acts chapter eight, (laughs) all right? And in Acts chapter eight, we see some fun stuff happen. And the first seven chapters in the book of Acts is is the move of God's spirit in Jerusalem and in Judea in particular. And some of you might know that God had called the church to go well beyond Jerusalem, right? And well beyond Judea. And yet here the church is still just chilling in Jerusalem and they're just chilling in Judea. They've not, they've not expanded. We're gonna see what God will do. In Acts chapter eight through 12, we see the move of, of the gospel through Samaria in particular. And the church will be scattered to further places than that, but Luke is gonna trace the story of what happens in Samaria in particular. And it's almost as if Luke took the script from Jesus and goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter eight through 12, we see a God who saves. You're gonna see uh, people get saved in Acts chapter, you'll see it every chapter almost. But in Acts chapter nine, guess what happens? We got this guy named Saul of Tarsus who thought he was doing some business for the Lord, but then realizes that he's kicking against the goads with just like this prodding stick. And Jesus humbles him. And Paul eventually bows his knee to the Lord. Paul gets saved. In Acts chapter 10, some really good news happens. The Holy Spirit is given and poured out onto the Gentiles. The Gentiles can be saved. Isn't that incredible? They don't have to become Jews first. The gospel and the cleansing work of the cross is so sufficient that they can be saved right there and then in their own household, in a Gentile household. That's Acts chapter 10. That's good news for all of you in here who aren't Jewish because we can be saved. We can get fired up for that. And then Acts chapter 11 is basically Peter saying the story that happened in Acts chapter 10 because the church was like, wait, what? It didn't compute for them. The Gentiles can be saved, how can this be? And so Peter is gonna explain his story. In Acts chapter 12, he gets thrown into prison and then released miraculously and they don't believe it. It's the God who saves, whether it's souls or whether it's from prison, whatever it is, we see a God and serve a God who saves. In Acts 13 through 28, we're gonna watch and be in awe of a God who has no boundaries, who can work in ways and minister to people that you would just think are totally lost, man. If you think you're too far gone, man, we get to read the story of Paul here in a second. We're gonna talk about the things that he had done to the church and yet how God still used him in a powerful way. One of the worst of the worst and yet God used him in one of the most incredible and mighty ways. Acts chapter eight. Okay, now we're gonna get into it. Okay, you guys ready? (laughs) Now Saul was consenting to his death. We're talking about the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stuck around in Jerusalem. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. If you go back up, the word great there is the Greek word megas, So it was a mega persecution. It was intense. And we'll read some stories about what happened. Rose against the church that was in Jerusalem. And notice what's going to happen. Now, can you throw up the first picture? Excuse me, the one that's in Spanish. Yeah, it was the best picture I could find. You probably have seen this if you were here when we were in Acts chapter two, uh, when the spirit of God was poured out. These are the nations of Pentecost. 
And three, year, three times a year, Jews were required to go back. Every able-bodied Jewish male had to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate three different feasts, uh, Passover being one of them and Pentecost being the second one. Pentecost was the most uh, well-attended of all the feasts because it, was, it took place during really nice weather. And so people could easily get back there. And so notice in God's wisdom, I want you to be amazed by him, how he brings all these people and brings them all into this central location called Jerusalem. And during that time, what's he gonna do? He's gonna pour his spirit out on the church during that time. And so all these millions of people who've now come to Jerusalem are gonna be seeing this and hearing that. And what happened was, if you can remember, they basically all stayed and they sold their possessions and they had everything in common and they stuck around and they, uh, you could say the church was like incubated, grown strong, roots were able to develop and so on. Well, here we are in Acts chapter eight, you guys, and they haven't moved. They haven't gone anywhere. Jesus is like, you guys are gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And right now we've gone to Jerusalem basically and some of Judea. That's as far as the church has gotten. What are they doing? Is there complacency? Are they just chilling? Who knows? There's, a, there's, there's things to learn from this. But you can be amazed, can't you? And then, and then as this persecution arises, God's gonna use that to move his church. The question you could ask is, what will it take for you to go? What will it take for you to go? What will it take for you to take seriously what God has called you to do? to like really have a heart for him. And it's a question that's never meant to be a condemnation or a heavy trip. It's just a question that you can ask yourself a way of interest, to introspect and just say like, what will it take? What is it that's hindering me from really following after Jesus like he's asked me to? Here's the cool part. It all goes back to Jesus. Every bit of it. If I fail, when I fail, I go to a place where it's like, I just need to go back to the Lord. What do you do when you fail? What do you do if you ask that question and you realize the answer is pathetic? It's embarrassing. I get that. I say, God, here I am. I'm sorry. I want to do what is right. I want to know you more. I want to make you known more. Guys, I'm telling you, put your heart out there and just tell them where you're at and, and then let them minister to you. Let them love you. Let them draw you gently to him. Let him empower you by the spirit and embolden you to do the work that he's called you to do. But that starts at a relationship with him, doesn't it? And enjoying him and knowing him. And so we can start right there. And then if you ask the question, what will it take for me to go? And it's like, I don't know. I don't even really care. It's like, oh Lord, change my heart and convict me. We'll get to that. Uh, throw the next picture up there. This is just a quick map of Judea. You'll see it in Samaria just so you can see the small scope where the church is at this point in time. And as we continue through the book of Acts, I hope your mind gets blown for how incredible God is and how powerful the spirit is and how God so loves the world that we get to share about Jesus who gave himself on our behalf. And so we're just talking about Jerusalem and, and small parts of Judea. We haven't even gone up to Samaria yet. It's happening right now though, isn't it? Which is fun and exciting. So they, the persecution arose and the church was scattered. They start, they start moving into Samaria and they will eventually go beyond that. Look at verse three. As for Saul, we're gonna go back and hear his story. He made havoc of the church and he would go into these houses. Why houses? Because that's where the early church met. They didn't have buildings like this. They would meet in houses. It was convenient at the time. When they were able to, uh, they met in larger buildings as the church grew and so on. Sometimes they would meet in Solomon's colonnade, which is a large area they could gather in. 
Regardless, he would go into the houses. And I want you to imagine this. We have home fellowship tonight. And if you guys haven't plugged in yet, come on. You can do that. Contact me. We want to get you plugged in. But imagine tonight we're hanging out, having fellowship, eating some yummy food, which we always do, and chilling. And then all of a sudden, door breaks in and people come in and they take me, they take my wife. And it's just what's up. There's no rule of law. There's, no, there's nothing there. They just come in and they take us. Why? Because we follow Jesus. We believe things that are offensive to a particular group. And then they can't handle it, so they, they take us. Saul's upset. They walk into the homes and they drag men and women away. What does that mean? That means that there were kids who no longer had parents at home. Do you realize that? Like imagine what that would do to us as a church body. If we heard last night, this happened to our, some dear friends in the church. And now we as a church have to come and we get to come and we get to surround them and love that family. You could see how that would bind us together, wouldn't it? It would really con- cause us to come together as a church. There'd be unity. All of a sudden, all of a sudden things got real. Like this isn't just some thing you do. This isn't some religion, like it's real. There's actually cost involved in following Jesus. All the things that he said, all of a sudden, now they make sense. Oh, there's a cross involved in this. Okay, this is serious stuff. It's not just some neat religious thing we do on Sundays, but this is actually real. And Jesus has asked us to follow him no matter what, even if people come into our homes. And so this is what was happening with Saul. And he's taking him to prison. How long were they there? Hard to say. There was a lot more that he did because havoc is an interesting word. There's two different meanings for it. Both of them are true in Paul's case. The first thing is that Paul would try, havoc, would try to affix a stigma onto the Christians. He would cause them to be spotted, dishonored, and defiled. To where if somebody knew that you were a Christian, it would have a very negative impact on the way they thought about you. Does that make sense? When they heard about your ideas and your beliefs and all of a sudden you were stupid, you were a joke, you were a laughingstock, ostracized work, made fun of and left out. That's the idea of a stigma. Like you're just, nobody wants to be around you. And so Paul was seeking to cause Christians to be people who couldn't interact socially perhaps with others. Uh, they were afraid to be with others. Like the, the world wanted nothing to do with you. Stay away from me, you're a Christian. I'm not interested in talking to you because you're an idiot. That's to stigmatize somebody. The second thing is to treat shamefully. And you try to imagine what that means. I'm just trying to be descriptive so that it makes sense. Like these are real stories that happened and real people were affected by this and real kids were impacted. Grandparents, all, everyone was impacted. Like this was real and it hurt. Imagine the injustice of it all where you were just enraged. How can this be God? How could you allow these people to be taken off and now their kids are stuck at home and now what are we gonna do? You can imagine how difficult it would be to compute. Why would you let this happen, God? This is hard. This is real stuff. This actually happens. And you guys know if you go to Voice of the Martyr, stuff happens today. That's happening right now. In some part of the world, there's people being um, persecuted right now because they follow the same God that you did because they want to gather just like we do. They're being persecuted right now. Thank God for the safety we have, but let's not forget to pray for them. To treat shamefully, to embarrass them, to drag them out on the streets and ridicule them and hurt them in front of their family members and friends. Imagine what that would be like if that was something that we endured and had to go through, it would just be difficult. But what would it do to the church? We see it strengthens the church in an incredible way. To injure, to ravage, to devastate and ruin. That's what that word means. But check this out. I think this is kind of fun. Before we get into what happened with Paul, go to Acts chapter 17. And uh, this is cool. Okay, you guys have unspiritual gifts, probably. If you wonder what they are, 
Ask your spouse. What's my unspiritual gift? And they'll probably tell you, which might be an unspiritual gift in and of itself, by the way, is their ability to point out your unspiritual gift. That could be an unspiritual gift in and of itself. You could have an unspiritual gift like lying where you're able to think on your feet. I have that unspiritual gift. It's sin. All right, I'm not making light of it. Okay, bear with me for a second. But it's sin. Uh, some of you have the unspiritual gift of like you get really angry or you have the unspiritual gift of seeing the faults in other people and you can just read them and you see it right away. Anger, apathy, all these different things are called sin. We're not making light of it. Um, Paul had this passion of, of rage and anger and you'll see that. It's, and he actually says such that he was so enraged and angry that he, well, we'll get to it. Here's what's fun. When the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of your life and God refines you and makes you holy, he takes those things that were not good and when they're in the power of the Spirit, it's awesome. That ability for you to think quick on your feet, God can use that for his glory. No longer do you have to lie, but God can use it for his glory to, when you're interacting with a human being. That's a really good thing. What about that passion and rage that comes in you? God can use that too, can't he? He can use that to go hard after him that you see an injustice in the world and for the glory of God, you wanna do something about it and you make somebody else's matter your own because you care for them. And that rage, that passion, maybe God takes it and he uses it for his glory. The flesh wants to take it and ruin it, but the Holy Spirit wants to grab a hold of you and if you yield to him, he uses those things. It actually offers us hope that I'm not just stuck in this mess of a world, but like Jesus can take me and use me if I would just yield to him. Here I am, God. Here's my passions. Here's my thoughts. Here's my mind. Everything that's there. Here I am. What, what happens with Paul? Check it out. Acts chapter 17, verse six. It says, but when they did not find them, and the them would be Paul and Silas and Timothy, kind of that ministry group that was there in, in Thessalonica. When they couldn't find them, a, a riot was, a, was there. They're trying to get them. They dragged Jason and some brethren and rulers of the city crying out, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What was the problem with Paul and his ministry team and the Christians? They turned the world upside down and they were so angry about it. That havoc that Paul would give to the church, now he's given it for the Holy Spirit and for the gospel's sake and the world hates him for it. We would look at it and say, Paul's taking things and he's making things right side up, right? Finally, lives are being changed and people are coming to know Jesus Christ and it's so affecting the culture that people are no longer buying idols. People are no longer going to bars. People are no longer going and getting prostitutes. And so it's messing up entire economies and they're fired up about it and they're coming to kill Paul if they can, but he escaped thankfully and went down to Berea. And so he goes and does this. They turn the world upside down. We call that a holy havoc, right? It's holy, it's God has taken it and God's using it and God wants to use us to do the very same thing. And so rest assured, yield to the spirit. You have issues in your life, you better believe you do. That's why you need Jesus. That's why the cross was there. He's, he can refine us, he can sanctify us, he can make us holy. It's a progression, it, work, it takes work. That's why we hang out together. That's why we interact in fellowship. That's why we have spouses perhaps because they can point these things out in a really helpful way um, and a consistent way <laughs> a lot of times which is a really good thing. And so we want a holy habit. God, do that work in and through us. Now, as far as Paul was concerned, I'm gonna highlight some things that he referenced as far as what, it, what did he mean by havoc? So in Acts chapter 22, he's making a defense in these next two sections of himself. Here he's in Jerusalem. But he says this in verse four, I persecuted this way to the what? To the death. 
So Havoc wasn't just hauling people off, although he did do that, but he persecuted these people to the death. People died because Paul sought after them. Imagine living with that. And it actually gets worse. I persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering them into prisons. Um, I took them to be punished. In Acts chapter 26, verse 11, or this is, well, I'll just read verse 11 for now. No, I won't. These things I did, this is verse 10. No, I should read all of it. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's all really good. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. When we're in Acts chapter eight during this, like that's Paul doing many things contrary to the name of Jesus. We're, We're like, we're reading it right now. This is Paul thinking back 20, 25 years in the past and remembering what had happened here in Acts chapter 26. Um, This also I did in Jerusalem. We're right there right now, isn't that fun? And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. We saw that with Stephen. That was one example. It happened many other times. Somebody would be put to death and Paul would say, right on, good work, guys. Let's get rid of this sect. He goes on in verse 11, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul would call out people and he would say, you deny Jesus Christ right now, we're gonna kill you. And people would say, I deny, I don't follow him anymore. Paul lived with that. Imagine the freedom that comes to a man who has done that. But think about 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, behold, he's a new creation. Can you imagine how good that would feel? for a dude who would bear the weight of causing other Christians to blaspheme, ripping families apart. Now there's kids who don't have dads or moms because they're in prison or have been killed. And Paul was the reason why that happened. That's a heavy weight to bear. I cannot even imagine. And yet here's a dude who would pin new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. No longer was he defined by his past. No longer did he have to be held down by what had happened. He was a free man. And that's so sweet. In Christ, that's what we have, that freedom that comes because of what he has done. We sang about it this morning. And that causes joy, doesn't it? It causes an elation of the heart. Think about all the good that Christ has done, that all my failures and mistakes have been forgiven. They're gone as far as east is from the west. And we can now walk forward by the power of the spirit in the, according to the wisdom of God's word and do the work that God's called us to do. Paul lived it. Right now, he's Saul making havoc of the world. Um, we'll go on in Acts chapter four, uh, sorry, eight verses four through um, eight, which is as far as we'll get today. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That could be translated, they simply shared the good news. They were just talking about what had happened and what Jesus had done. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Pop that map back up, will you real quick, Jessica, please? Uh, Really fast, you might notice, I don't know if you guys know this, it's just a fun thing to talk about. Brett has been teaching us some things on Wednesday night about map making. It's been a lot of fun. He's done a good job with it. And so we're drawing a map of of Israel, understanding topography and where certain cities are just to give us a good visual of it. And you'll notice you've got Jerusalem or you see Udemea and then you go up a little bit further and you've got Judea and then a little bit before that is Bethlehem and then you get Jerusalem, right? And Jerusalem kind of is on top of some mountains of sorts. And basically from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean is a a slope down to the sea. 
And you'll see there's not on this, but there's a, oh, there is a Samaria. You see it right above Samaria and Mount uh, Gezerim. There's Samaria. And the reason why he went down to Samaria is because it was going down in elevation, right? These are just things I didn't know. So in case you didn't know, sweet, if you're sitting there thinking this is dumb, then just ignore me for now. But it would go down. On a map, though, for us, he's going up, right? I was like, why is he, like, come on, no, the Bible's not true. It says you're going down to Samaria, but it's obviously up. Well, they didn't have maps like this. And so they went down, like literally, they went down in elevation to Samaria, just in case you're wondering, in case you've got some friends that have something crossed in their head and they're thinking, oh, the Bible's not true because Samaria's up from Jerusalem. It's not true. It's actually down. That's where they went. Now the gospel's going where? Into Samaria, finally. We're stretching out a little bit as a church, right? We're getting out there and doing the things that God has called us to do. And so they went down. He preached Christ to them. Isn't that cool? He didn't preach something cute to them. What did he preach? Christ. He preached Christ to them, crucified, no doubt, the message of the cross that we've seen throughout all of Scripture. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. They heard and they saw the miracles that he did, moves of the Spirit. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There was great joy in that city. Even though the persecution was taking place, you notice the church starts to go and there's gonna be some cool stories we're gonna have as we continue through in the book of Acts on how God and his sovereignty and somehow he sees all of time and moving and he's able to then take this persecution where the church was getting complacent perhaps. They were chilling, doing their holy huddle thing. And he's like, hey, we got work to do. It's time to go. And what's he do? He, he allows this persecution to take place which can be a heavy thing theologically to consider, but God's gonna use it for his glory. It didn't have to just be devastating. It's gonna be awesome. God's gonna use it to be awesome. The word of God is not chained. Second Timothy chapter two, eight through nine, Paul makes this point. He's in prison getting ready to die. He's chained up, but he says, the word of God is not chained, meaning that there's nothing that can stop it. Continuing on in what God has called us to, the gospel's gonna go. The word of God isn't chained. The gospel's going to Samaria, whether Paul likes it or not. And as you scatter the church, what do you do? You just share the gospel wherever you go. That was kind of what the church did. What will it take for us to go? And what will it take for us to do the things that God has called us to? I know this man, it's to know him and to make him known. God has called us to enjoy him. You know that, but consider and think with me as we kind of wrap things up Jesus wants us to go to all nations, right? There'll be those of you in this room who perhaps are gonna be called to go to other nations for his glory, for his, for his service. That's exciting. God, stir these people up. Raise them up. There might be some of you who are called to go to another place within the United States. Maybe there's a small city that you have a heart for, your hometown, and God's stirring your heart for it. There's no church there that teaches through God's word that does these things. It's like, man, I wanna go back there. Sweet. Be stirred up. Let God do that thing. He says all nations, but I'll tell you what, if you're not faithful here, I don't know if he's gonna call you to go anywhere else. Be faithful in the small things. And so those little things, those little areas and the people that you're around, man, be faithful with that. All nations, the church cannot become complacent or content. There's too much at stake, isn't there? We cannot be, especially concerning the souls of people. There is certainly a need for us to be aware of the signs of the times, to know what, 
<coughs> excuse me, to know what we're getting into, to know the direction of the world. We need to be aware of these things, but we need to be aware that there are souls of people out there that are valuable and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he died for. Comfort can rob the church of its mission. And we wanna be really careful not to become complacent. So can we become diligent to know Jesus? I want to be, we're trying, right? As a fellowship, we're trying, God stir us up. And can we become diligent to make him known? I want to be like me personally, I read these things and study scripture myself and, I'm, and, and can be under tremendous conviction because I recognize that I fall short in so many ways, right? And so I like, Lord, help me, please. So many of you might be able to resonate with that. Can we begin to actively pray? I have three things I'm gonna ask you guys to pray for. And this is stuff we're gonna go through uh, next week and just ask God to minister to us. And, and we're gonna present these things before him. All right, we can do this. <clears throat> the first thing to pray for is that God would give us a heart of love and compassion for the lost. Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, 34, he looked out at the multitudes and he saw them and he had, he was, said it was moved with compassion for them because he looked at them and saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. And so what it says, and so then he began to teach them many things. He poured into them. He saw them, his heart hurt. He was moved with compassion and he did something about it. Can we pray that God would give us a heart of love and compassion for the lost? because sometimes we can become upset with them and we can equate a person with an ideological idea or some kind of political thing. No, 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 let's see them as people. I'm not saying those things aren't important and distinctions can't be made at all. Um, what I'm saying is I don't ever want that to get in the way of sharing with somebody or ministering to somebody or getting to know somebody so that there'd be an opportunity to share the gospel. Those things have got to be put aside so that the gospel can be proclaimed because people are much more than all of that. <clears throat> Give us a heart of compassion for the lost. Number two, that we would be mindful of who God brings into our path. Consider this for a second. There were five different groups of people that Jesus interacted with in scripture. And we're gonna pray that God would help us to be mindful of who God brings into our path. Kind of like with your eyes wide open. What are you doing, God? The first group of people were people who came to him. So think in scripture and the gospels. Who came to Jesus, right? You think of Jairus who came and said, my daughter's sick, can you heal her? He came to Jesus. There were people who were brought to Jesus. Think about the paralytic guy who his friends brought to him. Many times that would have happened. So people will come to him and interact with Jesus. People would bring him. How, what does that look like in our day and age? Well, people come into you and saying, I'm struggling, I need help. Oh my gosh, praise God, let's minister to them. What about they call you on the phone and say, hey, my friend is struggling, can you help them? That's somebody coming to you on behalf of somebody else. That happened with Jesus, it happens with us. We're praying, God, do this work. I wanna be available, right? I wanna be able to receive those kind of phone calls or interact with those kinds of people. The third one were people he passed by on the road. He's walking on the road and he passes by somebody and the spirit of God says, stop. I want you to minister to this person. Peter and John did that. Remember on the gate, beautiful, they're walking past the beggar and the spirit of God says, stop, look at him and minister to him. And eventually Peter's like, I don't have any money walk. And he was healed, right? God will stop. So there's people that we pass by. There are those that he went out of his way for. That's like the Samaritan woman where Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. He said, I must go through Samaria. Who do you have in your life? Or are there people? Well, I want to be mindful. We're praying, God, make us mindful of these people that you go out of your way for. That's kind of like this. 
Like you could go to a convenient grocery store next to you, or you could go to like this one that you developed a relationship with the cashier or people there, and you go out of your way because you want to continue to feed into that relation. Does that make sense? That's going out of your way. Or there's people that you simply don't like, or maybe there's that corner of the neighborhood you don't really want to go to because you know that person's going to be there and you don't want to interact with them and it's going to be awkward. But God is softening your heart for that person. So all of a sudden now it's like, oh, okay, let's go down the cul-de-sac, I guess, right? And so you'll go and you'll do that. We're asking God, Lord, do this work in us, that he would stir us up, that we wouldn't be content to just live out our, the rest of our days in a holy huddle, but that God would move us and stir our hearts to those people he went out of his way for. Those are hard sometimes. Jesus broke down a lot of things at that point in time, didn't he? Okay, and then finally, pray that we would be ready and excited to receive the harvest because that's when a lot of work begins. You sow a seed, fruit, roots, and then fruit, right? But what about when the harvest comes? Are we ready for it? Did you know it's hard? And oftentimes really, well, it's really difficult working with new believers, people who are young in the Lord. And you who have been in the Lord for so long, like how can you not understand this, right? You're, you're upset, let's go. Man, that God would make us ready to be patient with people, to be compassionate and slow and, and be able to take the time to disciple them because it's difficult trusting that God will direct them, trusting that God will sanctify them by his word and, and sow that into them. It might be slower than what we think, but we just got to remember back to when we were then. We were in that spot where we were once disobedient and foolish and doing all these things. Like, I, that was me. I was there. So God, make us ready and excited for the harvest to come. The harvest comes in, it's sitting on the floor. What do you gotta do? You gotta thresh it now. You gotta toss it up and let the wind blow and all the chaff away. Then you take the grain and you gotta grind it in a grinding stone. Then you gotta take that and you gotta bake it. And then it becomes useful, right? There's a process involved. It's not like I can just reap and then I'm done. No, 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 we gotta be ready to then take that which we've reaped and then develop it and invest in it and disciple it. And I think that that will require work. So we wanna be ready for it. <clears throat> We see that God is working in an incredible way. Philip is just a guy, isn't he? Do you realize, we gotta be done, but do you realize that Philip was just a guy who had never hung out with Jesus? So that, he, like we're on the same plane there. You guys had never hung out with Jesus. Philip never hung out with Jesus. Philip only heard about Jesus from the disciples and the apostles. And this is like the first time we really read of a story. Oh, I know we had uh, Stephen God used. And so Philip's another one where we see God working in and through a totally like normal person who had just been born again and filled with the spirit. Um, he never hung out with Jesus, just like us, you know? And so it's exciting to see for the first time God using just normal people. He wasn't even called to be a pastor, was he? He wasn't called to do anything special other than hand out money or food for widows. That was what God called Philip to. But regardless of what that job might be, guess what? Every single one of us get to share the gospel. Every single one of us have been called to make disciples, whether you're helping widows or whether you're going and casting out demons, you're called to make disciples from all the, the whole gamut. Um, and note the result of all of this was joy. A move of God's spirit will bring joy that God would cause us as a church to be people that people want to be around. They enjoy being around. It doesn't mean we compromise, but it means we learn and by the power of the Spirit, we ask God, help me know how to interact with the world in a way 
that is loving, kind, and compassionate, but also doesn't compromise or affirm anything that the Bible wouldn't affirm. This is a difficult path to walk, but guess what? We have a God who can do anything, and so I bet he can figure it out. What do we do? Know him, enjoy him, recall the cross. Don't get comfortable. And that a scary prayer. Can you pray that God would make you uncomfortable in the sense that he'd stretch you and stir you up? That's a scary prayer because he'll answer it. And sometimes that means hardship. Pray that God would use you and let joy be a marker in your life that people want to be around you so that you can speak truth into them. All right, Lord, we ask for your help in all of this because I really, I literally cannot do any of it. So weak and so frail, so cowardly in my own flesh. But you told us that um, you've not given us a spirit of fear or cowardice, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so Lord, would you enable us to walk in the power you've given us, to walk in the things that you've given us? We need your help. We thank you for your word, the beauty of it, how we can learn and glean from it. We ask now that you would just minister this to to the body and you would stir us up. Whatever work you want to do, Lord, that's what we're here for. Have your way in us, Lord. We, need, we yield to you. We need you. We desire that you would sit on the throne of our hearts. Here we are, Lord Jesus. Have your way in us. Move in us. Breathe in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.